I think the day you're thinking about buying into the practice or real estate, you need to be thinking about eventually how will you exit. Veterinary Financial Podcast, where we discuss financial freedom and whole life success. I'm Meredith Jones, an emergency vet in Virginia. And I'm Phil Zeltzman, a board-certified small animal surgeon in Pennsylvania. Phil and I are beyond thrilled to be hosting the second edition of the Veterinary Financial Summit virtually on September 18th and 19th. We will have interactive sessions and workshops on everything personal finance and practice finance. Go to vetfinancialsummit.com summit to learn more and sign up. We would like to thank our wonderful partners. Care Credit is our lead partner both for the Veterinary Financial Summit and this podcast. Of course, Care Credit is the popular third-party payment platform, as well as our gold partner, Securos, which is a company that makes suture material, orthopedic implants, orthopedic instruments, as well as general instruments. So thank you to our beloved partners. Our guest today is Colin Hart. He is the Managing Director for ERE Healthcare Real Estate Advisors. ERE is a silver partner of the Veterinary Financial Summit. Colin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. So Colin, before we get into more detail about what you do, can you give us a broad overview of what happens when a vet wants to sell a practice? How, how does it work between the actual practice and the real estate? Are they sold together? Should they be sold separately? Sure. So that's a great starting point. When a veterinarian is looking to sell their practice, it's typically a different consideration than the real estate. So you're typically going to get the best value when you separate those two assets. And so the practice will end up going to a company who buys practices. And if you elect to sell the real estate, it'll end up going to a company that uh, specializes in buying real estate. So you're going to get the best total value by separating the assets. All right. And Colin, how did you get started with real estate in general and then uh, healthcare real estate specifically? Uh, so I have a little bit of a long background in real estate, which I'll, I'll try to give you the abbreviated version. But I started working for a family company who owned shopping centers all over the state of Florida. And so shopping centers are really a management intensive real estate investment. So our principal said, hey, I'm interested in acquiring more assets that are hands-free that I don't have to worry about as much. So we started buying single tenant properties, which many veterinary properties are single tenant. So we bought all types of different properties from fast food restaurants to drug stores and gas stations. And so we got our feet wet in the medical world. Eventually, I ended up leaving that company and I went to work for a private REIT or real estate investment trust, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more later. And we bought all types of properties just on a larger scale. So we were buying industrial properties, retail properties, and then healthcare properties, including some veterinary assets. So what's so different about healthcare real estate as opposed to veterinary real estate or other types of real estate? So I'd actually say that veterinary real estate is part of the healthcare real estate asset class. So the the primary types of real estate that people might think about are multifamily. So that's like apartments or hotels or retail, which might be shopping centers or some single tenant properties. Then there are industrial properties. And then we move over to uh, healthcare assets. And so 
Healthcare assets, I would say, are composed of, you know, human healthcare facilities. So that might be hospitals and clinics. But then obviously veterinary care is kind of part of that class as well. And I would say that's like a subsector of healthcare real estate. And so what are the options that veterinary practice owner would have when it's time to sell their practice real estate? So oftentimes a veterinary practice is considering selling their practice to look at the succession planning surrounding that actual operating entity. And so that frequently drives a real estate sale as well. And the reason for that is if you're selling your practice, you're no longer going to control the tenancy within the building that you might own. And so most of our clients, they bought or built their real estate as a way to control the destiny of their practice. And so if they're selling their practice, then they are just going to be a third party landlord because now they just own the real estate and not the practice. And it really changes the risk profile of that real estate investment. When you used to be an owner occupier, right? When you owned your practice, you kind of control both sides of the equation. And now if you sell your practice, you no longer control the tenant within your building. So it introduces a different dynamic to your real estate ownership. And oftentimes that drives a sale in healthcare real estate overall, but particular to our conversation in veterinary real estate. Does it mean that the risk increases for the owner? I think it depends on your risk tolerance. So a lot of our clients, they have confidence in themselves as operators. So if they're the owner occupant and they control the destiny of the practice, they feel safer in that. When you are owning a property that's leased to a different company that you don't control, that company might have more financial strength than your individual practice, right? So if you sold your practice to say VCA, obviously that's a huge company. It's backed by Mars. They have plenty of capital to pay the rent, but they make decisions differently than you might make decisions. And so VCA might say, well, you know, we signed a lease on your real estate when we bought your practice, but in the long term, your facility is not necessarily part of our long term strategy. So eventually they may relocate from that facility. So to answer your question, it could introduce an additional element of risk. The point is you just no longer control that decision-making process within the practice. So it kind of takes some control away from you. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Thank you. Sure. And so what are some of the most common transaction types and then uh, the most common buyers of veterinary practices? So I would say there are two different types of transactions, which we kind of touched on earlier. But the first type is, look, if you're selling your practice, then as part of that practice sale, the buyer is going to require that a new lease be executed if you own the real estate, right? So they're going to want to make sure that there's an arm's length lease in place, one that has market terms, that's at a market rent. And now you have a signed lease and now your real estate is a cash flowing asset because it has a predictable rental stream associated with it in that lease. And so that asset can be sold to a third party investor. Now that's one type of transaction and that's a lot of our business. Another part of our business is a sale and leaseback. And so you may have heard the terminology sale and leaseback, but in essence what it is, is it's a sale of your real estate simultaneous with the practice executing a new long-term lease. And you don't need to sell your practice in order to do something like this. But the idea is more than likely if you own your practice in real estate, 
they're owned in two separate entities and your practice entity is paying rent to your real estate entity. That's how most of our clients have it set up. So in a sale leaseback, what changes is who you pay rent to. So you sell your real estate, simultaneously sign a new long-term lease with the buyer. And now instead of paying rent from one pocket to the other, you know, from your practice to yourself, you're just paying rent to a new third-party landlord. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes. So in other words, you could sell the practice by itself and yes. keep the real estate, or you could do Correct. exactly the opposite. Correct. Yeah. You could sell the practice by itself and keep the real estate. You could sell the real estate by itself and keep the practice, or you can sell both the practice and real estate, you know, one before the other or vice versa. I think it really depends on the objectives of, of the owners. And so as part of a transaction like that, kind of the second part of your question was who are the common buyers of uh, veterinary real estate? And there are a lot of different ones. So there are uh, real estate investment trusts or REITs, which I feel like is kind of a buzzy word going around in the industry. Uh, There are real estate private equity funds, their family offices, their private investors, their 1031 investors. Uh, All of these entities have different kind of fancy names, but they all do the same thing, which is they buy real estate leased to top performing practices under long-term leases. And their objective is really just to collect cash flow, which they're going to get in the form of that rental income. Do you follow me? Yes. Great. So is that who you deal with on a daily basis when you try to sell a practice? Uh, When we're trying to sell the real estate? Yeah. So we... We like to think of ourselves as a conduit between um, the physician or veterinary world and the real estate world. So as mentioned previously, I came from you know the institutional real estate world. And so we like to think that, hey, we can speak the language of the providers, but we also know how to package the transactions such that they're attractive to the most aggressive buyers. So we're kind of the in-between, right? To make sure that the the providers are getting the best possible outcome from their transaction, not only in terms of price, obviously everybody thinks about price first, but also in with regard to the terms of a lease that they have to agree to. So just to clarify for our listeners, do you sell or do you help sell practices? Do you help sell real estate or both? We only sell real estate. Okay. However, we can give guidance on real estate points specific to a real estate lease when you're going through a practice transaction. Does that clarify it? Yes. Now, let's not forget that not all practices are bought by corporations or entities or investors. There's also individual practitioners who who might be interested. Do you deal with them as well? Sure, we do. I would say that Oftentimes, what we've seen is when the younger providers are coming in and they're buying the practice, and you guys are on the front lines more than I am, but in the transactions that we've dealt with, we've found that more of the younger providers are interested in maybe buying the practice, but not necessarily interested in being tied down to the real estate. Maybe they don't have the money to buy into the real estate, or they don't want to take on the debt to buy the real estate. So the answer is yes, we work with those folks. And we've even worked with people who say, hey, I have an opportunity to buy into the real estate. I'm buying into the practice. Can you help us evaluate this as a real estate investment? So in that case, you act as a consultant? Yeah, we act as a consultant. Correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. So can you give us some 
easy to understand guidance as far as how a practice is valued versus how the real estate is valued? I can. So, and stop me if you feel like any terminology I'm using is too jargony because I would love to explain it in more detail. So when you're selling your practice, it's typically going to be valued according to a multiple of the EBITDA or earnings. And so in case your listeners aren't familiar, EBITDA stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. But really, it's the earnings of the practice. And so what we've seen in terms of practices being sold is that they're valued at anywhere between eight and let's say 12 times the earnings or EBITDA of the practice. Okay. Now, when you're on the real estate side, we're not valuing according to earnings. We're simply valuing according to a multiple of rent because that's the cash flow associated with the real estate. And so on the real estate side, when you're valuing according to a multiple of rent, typically we're going to be in a valuation range of, let's say, 13 to 16 times annual rent. So the multiple on the real estate is generally a little bit higher. Was that a digestible, easy to understand response? This was perfect. We have very smart listeners, so they, they will follow Good. you. No doubt. So, Colin, I saw an article in the New York Times recently that was talking about how veterinary real estate ownership has changed in recent years. And sure. so it went back to the 80s and 90s. And Colin, you may remember seeing practices where the, the practice owner would own the practice and it would be actually attached to their house. And right. so we've gone from that being the model sometimes to now there are companies that actually specialize in, in buying veterinary real estate. What are your thoughts on that and how else has it changed in recent years? Sure. I think the ownership of veterinary real estate is not too different from the ownership of veterinary practices. And what I mean by that is there's this consolidation of ownership uh, because it seems to be a more efficient method of ownership and usage of capital. So, you know, we talked about the succession plan. If you're thinking about selling your practice, you're probably thinking about doing that because, hey, you might like to have the extra money. You want a liquidity event. You're thinking about, you know, your career timeline and when you might eventually retire. So if the younger providers who may be coming into your practice aren't interested in buying into the practice, or at least not for a value that you're interested in selling at, then you look to, hey, who's the next potential buyer? And that's driving a lot of practice sales, right? And I think the exact same thing is happening with real estate, where the younger providers, as we talked about earlier, are not quite interested in owning the real estate or being tied down to it or taking out the debt to acquire it, or at least not at a value that makes sense for the, the senior partner or partners. And so they look to, hey, how do I eventually get my money out of this? And so there have been real estate entities who have popped up who have said, hey, we can be that, that capital provider for you. We can create that liquidity event for you. We'll buy your real estate as long as it has a lease attached to it with the right parameters. And so I don't think it's bad necessarily. I think it's the reason that those, we'll call them consolidators, both on the practice side and on the real estate side have popped up is to create a solution that, that fills a void in the market. Before we move on to different topics, I'd like to go back to the multiples. I know that you have a crystal ball. So I wanted to ask <laughs> you where you think we are on the curve um, of multiples. 
or you know, can, because you you have experience of other professions like dentists and physicians. Sure. So where are we, the lowly vets, on the on that curve specifically for? Well, I guess you could talk about real estate and practices. Where are we? Are sure. we in the middle, the trail end, the beginning. So, Phil, my crystal ball is mm-hmm. as hazy as yours. Uh, but what I will tell you is this. So I, a lot of our business is actually in the human healthcare space, not only veterinary, but also in the human healthcare. And I would say that veterinary care from a aggregation standpoint and a sale to corporate standpoint is actually farther along. And what I mean by that is the multiples are higher and probably the aggregation strategies that are going on in the veterinary world are a decade ahead of human healthcare, probably because there's less regulation in veterinary care than there is with humans, right? So it's been a more accessible target for prospective buyers. In the the physician practice world, so human healthcare practices, the multiples that we're seeing are, let's say, five to 10 times EBITDA. And already in the veterinary world, we said, hey, we're talking eight to 12 times. So I think we're, if we're not at the peak, we're pretty close to it. It seems like, hey, this is, if you were ever going to sell your veterinary practice, probably now it makes sense to do so. We're even starting to see that in the, the human healthcare side. You know, it's, it's really frothy. On the real estate side, I have to say the same thing. You know, real estate moves in cycles. It's not dissimilar to, you know, how practice sales have evolved, but real estate definitely moves in cycles that kind of tracks with interest rates in the market. And so right now, interest rates are at an all-time low, which has driven real estate prices to an all-time high. They have an inverse correlation because when investors can borrow money for lower rates, they're able to pay more for properties, and that's what drives the price up. So right now, interest rates are at an all-time low. And I've been saying for a couple of years, they can't get any lower, but they've, they've stayed where they are, you know, so they haven't gone up yet. But eventually, they will go up. And so we'll see not a correction, but just a reduction in values in property. So I would say we're also at a peak in property value. All of that being said, we have another variable that's affecting pricing in the healthcare real estate market, which is COVID. And what I mean by that is there are all different types of real estate investors. We talked about the different types of asset classes that they invest in, like industrial, multifamily, shopping centers, retail, et cetera. And so COVID has really brought some of those folks to reality that, hey, there's a shift to online shopping. If you own an apartment building through COVID, people may not have paid you rent and it's difficult to evict them. And so that challenges the whole investment thesis behind owning multifamily real estate or retail real estate, because if, if you can't get your uh, residents out of your apartment and they're not paying rent, well, how are you supposed to collect rent from someone else? And in the retail world, if your tenants are moving to, you know, a direct to consumer business where they're selling their products online, how does that look for shopping center landlords? So as a result of those disruptions that we've seen in other segments, segments of real estate, we're seeing influx of capital into healthcare real estate which as we talked about, veterinary real estate being a subsector of healthcare is driving interest in veterinary real estate. So it's hard to predict, right? But we're seeing more interest in and higher valuations of healthcare and veterinary real estate as a result of both of those variables. Okay. Thank you for that. Sure. So when would you say practice owners should start thinking about the process, about what they're going to do with their 
practice and real estate. Okay. So I think the day you're thinking about buying into the practice or real estate, you need to be thinking about eventually how will you exit? Okay. So going in with wide open eyes and the right education is is the right approach. And the reason is because most of our clients, when we get in and talk to them, they haven't even thought about their exit strategy. They haven't even thought about how they're going to get their money out of their real estate. And it's not only about the money, it's about the succession plan. It's about you know, most of our clients built their practice and they want it to continue operating. So it's not only a financial transaction for them, it's really their entire career legacy, right? So it's such a, it's such a big legacy that it's critical to understand what the life cycle of that legacy is. So that's why I said going into a practice transaction, if you're a young vet and you're buying in, you need to be thinking about 20 years from now, what's my play, right? And once again, Neither of us have a crystal ball, but at least being aware of the options that are out there is a healthy way to approach any investment. Because frankly, while it might be your career, it's also an investment because it's not free to get into the practice or the real estate. Do you follow me? Mm -hmm. And just because you're going into it with open eyes doesn't mean you're going to do something the next year, right? If you're just buying into a practice or you're just buying into a real estate, I'm not saying you're going to sell the next year but you at least want to know what your options are so that at the appropriate time, you can plan on you know, making that next move. So what I would say is commonly we get into a situation where our client wants to sell the real estate. Maybe they're 65 years old. They want to practice for two more years. That's not a good point to sign a new long-term lease unless there's a serious you know, lineup of providers behind them who are going to continue the legacy of the practice. So probably that provider should have thought about, you know, hey, maybe 10 years before I retire, I might want to do something on the practice or real estate side versus two years in advance. Mm -hmm. Or two days. Or two days. Yeah. <laughs> so what other mistakes have you seen with leases that practice owners should try to avoid? So we'll talk about the ideal lease terms well, we'll talk about the mistakes, which will, I guess, directly lead us into the ideal lease terms. How about that? So the biggest mistake that a provider can make when thinking about their real estate, which this will happen during a practice transaction, is just not paying attention to the real estate. A lot of times the valuations on a practice are just so attractive and so eye-popping that a provider or partner wants to do anything they can to make sure they get that value, and they'll bend over any which way to make sure that happens. That's a mistake because the real estate, as we talked about, has significant value. I mean, the multiples can be higher on the real estate than what you sell your practice for. So it's, it's imperative that you think through that. Um, the biggest mistakes are folks signing too short of leases. So maybe they sign like a three or five or seven year lease. Maybe the lease is not set up as triple net, which we'll talk about perhaps in the next question or segment. Um, they may have the wrong entity on the lease when they sell their practice, meaning they sold their practice, but they got you know, some smaller business entity on the lease, not a, not a big corporate entity, or they may forget to have rental increases in their lease term. They may say, hey, you know, I'm getting, I don't know, $150,000 a year in rent. I'm happy with that. But in reality, the lease should have annual rental increases. So I would say those are the biggest mistakes. And if you're okay with it, I can just dive into, hey, what are the, the best lease terms? Yeah, maybe a quick question. Sure. What's a typical yearly increase for the rent? 
Sure. Um, I would say anywhere between two and four percent. Four percent's on the very rich side, uh, but most common is two, and we've seen plenty of leases with three percent increases. So let's kind of talk about what makes an ideal lease term or the right lease parameters following up on the biggest mistakes. Okay. So if you're selling your practice, let's actually say this would apply whether you're doing a sale and lease back or you're selling your practice. In both situations, you're going to need to structure a new lease. So these lease terms apply to both scenarios. So what, what you should do is you should have a long-term lease. Long-term means at minimum 10 years you'll get an even better value on your real estate with a 12 or 15 year lease. Um, typically, if you ask for it from a corporate operator, they will have no problem giving it to you, provided you have a high quality facility that they see as part of their long-term strategy. The leases need to be, as we talked about, having annual rental increases. So it could be anywhere from two to 4%. 2% would be totally fine. If you can get higher rental increases, it behooves you as a landlord or a real estate seller because it just means more rent over the term of the lease, which is beneficial. The lease will need to have a triple net structure. And there's a lot of nuance to this, but I'll go into it and stop me if you want any further explanation. But in real estate, there are three nets, we call them. So they stand for taxes, insurance, and maintenance. Those are the three nets, which we refer to as triple net. And so in a triple net lease, in addition to paying the base rent, which is you know the rental rate that you set for the, the building, the practice will also need to pay for property taxes, insurance, and maintenance. And provided they pay those things, the lease is referred to as a triple net lease. Now, there's a lot of nuance associated with a triple net lease. And so ideally what you're looking for, and again, this is whether you're going to sell or hold on to the real estate, it's better for you in both scenarios. You want this to be a passive, hands-free investment. And so that's the intention of the triple net lease, is that the tenant really should handle management, maintenance, everything related to the facility on their own. You as the landlord should not have that responsibility. So again, if you elect to hold on to your real estate, that's great because you're in the business of now just collecting rent. If you don't have a triple net lease or you missed some of the nuance that you need in that triple net lease, then the tenant might call you and say, hey, our roof's leaking, come fix it. And now it just becomes an annoyance, right? And so while that line of thinking applies if you're going to hold on to the real estate, the same thing applies if you're going to sell the real estate. Because whoever is going to buy your real estate more than likely is not based in your city or town. And they don't want to get calls about a light bulb going out or the roof leaking or the parking lot has snow in it. They want to just collect a check because that's really what they're set up to do. And so if you're going through a lease negotiation, it's critical that your lease is triple net. And there's a lot of nuance that is associated with that, that you'll need help with. So that's another point. And then uh, the last two are that your lease should have a financial reporting provision. And what that means is that as a landlord, you should be able to request financial statements from your tenant on some periodic basis. So that might be quarterly, that might be biannually, or at very minimum on an annual basis. And the thinking behind that is, you know, if you were the owner operator, you know, you own the practice, you own the real estate, you don't care what the financials of the practice are. You are the practice. You know that you're a good tenant. But if you are a third party landlord, 
you want to understand the profitability of the operation within your building because that'll help you forecast the success of that business, which ultimately affects your rental income. And so it's critical to have visibility into the performance of the location and frankly, who your tenant is. Because if you sell your practice to a corporate entity or to private equity, you know, they have all different types of capital structures and they do a lot of sophisticated, you know, financial maneuvers, let's say. So you want to have some visibility to understand that to decide, hey, is this really a tenant that I want to have? You know, a lot of these entities are not as strong as as Mars, right? Who's behind Blue Pearl and VCA. A lot of them are newer entities. So they have different capital structures that, hey, you might not want them to be your tenant, right? And that might be the reason that you that you sell the property. So financial reporting is critical. And then the last one is you want to make sure that if you're selling your practice to a corporate entity, you understand who the tenant is. And so it's critical for you to ask to get the top level entity as your tenant. And what I mean by that is think about a business that's buying all different businesses. They might put those businesses in different entities to kind of keep them siloed and insulate the financial impact of one from another. Well, you don't want to have a siloed entity. You want to have the biggest, strongest corporate corporate entity that you can get, which gives you the most relief that they're going to be able to pay you rent on a consistent basis. So that if there's some issues in one facet of their business, it doesn't matter to you because you have the parent company on the lease. So does that kind of make sense? I know there's some nuance to that. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Okay. So, and by the way, all of these things are market and normal. And if you ask the buyer of your practice to give you these things, they might put up a little fight. You know, their jobs to negotiate the best deal for themselves. But in the end, you have to remember that each one of these factors really affects the value of your real estate and or your continued ownership of the real estate. So it's critical to get it right. Yeah, that goes into the questions that I had that came up as you were talking. One are those are the corporations open to that? And then also having access to the financial reports. Is that something that you see in other industries as well? It is. It's in all industries, frankly. So think about it like this. If you own a residential home and you want to rent it out to a tenant, right? So, so you're going to ask for the bank statements of your tenant. You're going to ask where are they employed? How much money do they make? Can they afford to pay the rent? And if they can't afford to pay the rent, you're not going to rent it to them. And so the same thing applies in this situation. It's you want to understand the financial strength of your tenant, not only to give you comfort in your investment or continued ownership, but if you ever go to get a loan on the property or refinance the property, your bank or lender is going to ask you for that. So it's very common for landlords to have visibility into how their tenants do. I guarantee that if you go to a shopping center down the road, and you know that there's a Ross or CVS or somebody in that shopping center, they are required on some periodic basis to report to the landlord the financials of the company. Okay. And what role does your company play in the middle of these transactions? Sure. Uh, so we're an intermediary. So we are a broker, right? But we really take much more of an advisory approach. And our goal is always to Make sure that if a, a client is going through a real estate sale or just considering a real estate sale, that they have the right information to help them make the right decision. And while we make money by selling real estate, that doesn't mean that a real estate sale is right for everybody. And I've told just as many people they should sell their real estate 
as I've told, hey, this isn't right for you at this time, okay? Um, so we like to think of ourselves as a facilitator. And so our job is that we act as a conduit between, you know, physicians, providers, partners, and institutional real estate investors. And the idea behind that is that, hey, your job is to care for patients or animals. My job is to make sure that you get the best deal on your real estate. We specialize in those things. And so we should focus on those things. If I can ask, how do you get paid? Is, is there a commission like on a house? There is. It, it works exactly like that. So uh, we, we have success fees is what we call it. And so basically we're paid if we close a transaction on behalf of our clients. There's no uh, retainer associated with it. It's not like you pay some fee upfront in order for us to look at your materials or help you start a transaction. Our fee is based on success. And I'll just put it in perspective for you, right? So um, we sold a $60 million facility in Texas a couple of years ago. Our fee on that was 1.5%. We're selling a $3 million facility in Ohio right now, and our fee is 6%. So it really depends on the size of the transaction as to how our fee is structured, uh, but it's typically a percentage of the sale price. So why would a vet work with you rather than other companies? And Are there other companies like yours? Sure. Yeah, that's a good question too. So I think everybody uh, knows some real estate guy, right? Whether it's someone you bought your house from or it's your cousin, everybody's in real estate. And so we run into this question a lot where people say, well, you know, uh, Joey, Joey, my brother-in-law, he sells houses. And I have to really stop people and remind them that all real estate is not the same. And I wouldn't even say this is just a traditional real estate transaction. This is not just, hey, you're selling a building, particularly when you're going through a sale leaseback transaction or structuring a lease as part of your private equity deal. Um, it's critical that you have the right guidance. And all we do is sell and advise physicians on selling their real estate, right? So we specialize in this kind of healthcare real estate segment, which obviously encompasses veterinary real estate as well. And the idea is that just like you would take your dog to a specialist to check out their eyes, you know, you would come to a specialist in healthcare real estate to help you exit or properly structure your real estate deal. Makes sense. So let's say a vet reaches out to you when they're ready to sell. Is that the only time that they should talk to you or are there other important moments or critical moments when they should call you? In sure. other words, would the owner of a startup practice benefit from talking to you early on or should they, they wait till they make the decision to, to sell? And then if I may add another question, do you help with negotiating leases or is that not in the scope of what, we, what you do? Sure. So... We are highly relationship focused. And what I mean by that is the likelihood that I'm going to call a veterinarian and say, do you want to sell your real estate tomorrow? And they say, yes, is very low. This is usually one of the largest transactions most of our clients go through in their lives, at least the largest real estate transaction. And so we're relationship and education focused because of that, because it's not always right for everyone at the right time until it is, right? And then, and then they're ready. So um, I would always encourage 
early discussions. I think it's healthy, whether you have partners or not, I think it's healthy for you to understand and explore your options as early as possible. Even what I said earlier in terms of, you know, uh, thinking about your real estate, even the day after you buy in, you need to be aware of, you know, what's your plan there. So we've worked with plenty of young practices who are just buying their first building and maybe we help them buy their building or maybe we just help guide them, right? You know, we just represented a cardiovascular practice in um, Virginia to acquire a building. It's going to be the first building they've ever owned. There's four partners and eventually they'll turn around and sell it, but they had to start somewhere, right? So I would say that we advise on all facets of real estate surrounding, you know, veterinary practices. And, and I wouldn't say it's ever really too early to talk about it. And then remind me your follow-up question. Do you help negotiate leases? Oh, so we do help negotiate leases. I would say that's a big part of our business. And typically the leases that we're helping negotiate are on behalf of our clients when they're selling their practice to corporate or private equity. And so we'll get involved and typically we do it on a goodwill basis. And what I mean by that is I'd rather help you structure your lease and make sure you get it right even if you're not committed to selling tomorrow, just because then you actually have the ability to sell when you want, right? So we've gone into so many situations where we added a lot of value for the client. And when the private equity deal was done and they had a signed lease, they didn't sell their real estate right away. And that's totally fine, but at least they have the opportunity to if they so desire in the future. So again, we were highly relationship-based from that standpoint. And so we always want to help folks with their leases so that they get it right. Because again, this is what we do for a living. We understand that you don't. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you a follow-up question in case it, it wasn't clear. If a vet starts a practice but leases a space, they don't buy it. We have no experience with negotiating terms for a lease. Do you right. help? Can you help with that? We can help with that. And, and we have plenty of times. Yeah. So we're, we're doing, uh, right now we are working with a large ophthalmology platform that has, you know, 30 locations, let's say, and we help them with all of their renegotiations, their expansions, renewals, et cetera. So, yeah. All right. A lot of good information. And, and so before we conclude, what important questions should we have asked you? So I think we covered a lot in our discussion, but one thing is you didn't ask me about my dog. So I just <laughs> wanted to share, and I wish I had her with me today, uh, but uh, my wife and I have a four-year-old uh, mini golden doodle that's nine pounds, and her name is Malia, and we love her very much. And everywhere we go, people say, where did you find her? And I say, well, she's one of a kind. So uh, just to share a little, a little personal piece about me. We really should have asked Meredith. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? So uh, you can always call me on my cell phone. I give that out to all clients and I'm assuming you guys will publish it as part of this presentation, but cell phone, email, text, we understand that you guys are busy. So we usually work nights and weekends when, when you guys are not thinking about, you know, your, your patients. So we're coming to our last question now, Colin, what is your best advice for our listeners? 
my best advice is really going to be a point that we've echoed a couple times through this interview, which is that it's never too early to talk about your real estate. And we really do encourage it early on, you know, in advance of doing anything, even in advance of, you know, exploring a private equity transaction. We always find that folks tend to make decisions surrounding their real estate kind of last minute. And I feel like they get jammed into a decision making process. And it's Again, great to know your options early, to be aware of things so that you can make the best possible decision, not only on your practice, but also on your real estate. Very good. Well, thank you. Yeah, th that was a great conversation. I think um, I don't want to put words into our listeners' mouth, but many of us probably think that we can do it all, right? We, we, we come out of vet school with a degree, and that makes us um, capable of fixing patients and managing a practice and doing HR and uh, negotiating leases and buying real estate. And so I think it's time that we understand that there's professionals who can do way better than we can because that's what they do all day. Just like we, you know, I'm a specialist, I'm a surgeon, that's all I do. I should never be allowed to treat it, to treat anything else but things that get broken. It should be the same when we talk about leases. That's what you do all day long. I agree. And if I can add to that, I think oftentimes people are turned off by the idea of paying a professional to do something, right? Whether it's your so taxes true. or your investments or whatever it might be. And the same applies for real estate. People really do think they can do it on their own. Uh, and I was just having a conversation with a colleague about this earlier today where he said, hey, the, the client was really turned off by the idea of fees. And he said, but, you know, in this particular deal, maybe it's a six-figure fee, but the value that can be created by this advisor is seven figures. I mean, it's in the millions of dollars. So basically, the client is saying, hey, I don't want to pay the fee, but doesn't understand that he's going to lose out on millions of dollars of additional value. So it's really a cost versus value discussion. And I would love to leave you guys with the fact that I think that every transaction we're involved in we always create more value than our cost. And if the real estate advisor you're working with doesn't, then you should find a new one. Mm -hmm. Good point. All right. That's a, yeah, that's a great endpoint. And uh, thank you so much, Colin. This has been a, a lot of great information. My pleasure. I really appreciate you guys having me on. And like I said, if, if we can ever help you or any of your listeners with anything real estate related, love to have a conversation. Very good. Thank you. And we'll see, you, we'll see you at the summit in September. Looking forward to it. Don't forget to sign up for the Veterinary Financial Summit, which is going to be virtual on September 18th and 19th. Go to vetfinancialsummit.com to learn more and sign up. Until next time, take care and continue your path to financial success. information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a legal or financial professional before making any investment decisions.